Welcome to Market Scale Healthcare. I'm Sean Heath, and today I have the privilege of having a conversation with the CEO and President at the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs, Dr. Arlen Myers. Dr. Myers, how are you today? Great. Thanks for having me back. I have. I want to. I want to understand part of of your professional process. So, as a physician, you work with physicians assistants, and generally, if I understand the relationship correctly, they gather information, vitals, and and, and information that uh, in order to help you hit the ground, um, informed and running, so to speak, when you move from patient to patient. Is that is that an accurate description of the sort of the dynamic? Yeah, in general, that's true. So, as a physician. If you could have a physician's assistant with every single one of your patients 24 hours a day monitoring critical information like maybe an irregular heartbeat or a low heart rate, that seems to me that it would be a tool that would be beneficial to you in your career as a physician. Well, on the surface, uh, that would make sense. The problem is there's too much data and there are too few assistants. So if... Everyone, for example, the latest example is this Apple announcement of, uh, you know, the Apple Watch monitoring your heartbeat or an EKG. Well, enormous amounts of data. That's just one little teeny tiny piece of the Internet of Things. And if you can imagine that petabytes of data are being created virtually daily, we have to ask the question, who is going to get all that information and what are they going to do with it? And it also seems like as we sort of transition into an evolved version of the Internet of Things, and that's the Internet of Medical Technology or Internet of Medical Things, it seems like there's even more information that you mentioned because every human being has so many points of data. We are a huge mass of information that somehow all works together in a contained unit. And for you to have to parse through all that information, it seems like there would have to be some sort of sensor or gating or time factor that would, to help limit the amount of superfluous information that would just get in the way of a diagnosis. Right. So the real question is, so we have to make the assumption that if not already, not to, in the not too distant future, there will be an infinite, almost infinite amount of data. And so we can't obviously process all of that. Um, and the analogy that I draw is um, essentially the Internet of Medical Things is, is like a, a cyber nervous system. And if you compare it to the human nervous system, the analogy that I draw is that when you put your hand over a hot flame and withdraw it in a fraction of a second, what makes that happen is what we call proprioceptors, which in this case are pain fibers or temperature fibers, let's say in the skin of your finger. And then there's a very sophisticated and well-evolved sensory apparatus and transmission apparatus through the nerves, through the sensory nerves, that send that impulse to your brain. Your brain miraculously processes that information instantaneously, sends a signal via efferent nerves, motor nerves, to, let's say, the muscles of your hand, and it tells the muscles of your hand to twitch to remove your hand from the flame so you won't get burned. So when you look at that system, there's a proprioceptive uh, receptor, or in the case of the Internet of Medical Things, there are remote sensors, and then there's an afferent limb. In other words, the information has to have a pathway to get to a central processing something. 
in other words, the cyber brain. And then the cyber brain has to make sense of all of that information and send a signal via an efferent limb to someone or something to make the appropriate adjustment. In the case of an intelligent machine, it will sense that the machine is about to break. It'll send an impulse to the machine and the, the machine will either fix itself or stop. So that's kind of the way the internet of medical things is built. Unfortunately, like I said, we have nowhere near the sophistication of the human nervous system. So it's going to have to evolve to figure out how we don't all suffer from sensory overload. Well, as the brain is the, the control center for the human nervous system, uh, as you mentioned, the analog to that in the cyber nervous system is obviously going to be AI, machine learning. Um, the communication protocols are, are being hammered out and argued over even as we speak. Um, the move to uh, deploy in 5G as a communication protocol is relatively important and is at the forefront in the industry. One of the things that I've seen that you wrote was a push from sick care to health care and a, a focus more on the preventative side. Are we, are we anywhere close to a point where we can utilize any of this data that we currently collect to help us be more preventative and less reactive when it comes to our health? Yes, but just like the example I gave where the intended outcome is to get is to move your hand off the stove, the intended outcome of all of this is to migrate, as I said, sick care to health care. And by that, I mean that roughly 95, 97% of the U.S. $3.2 trillion spend is spent on taking care of sick people, not preventing illness, chronic disease management, um, wellness, all that other stuff. So the challenge and the, and the model is unsustainable. So the way to make it more sustainable is to migrate sick care to healthcare using technology such as the internet of medical things. However, the biggest challenge is changing doctor and patient behavior. Because if I get sensory input that tells me to remove my hand from the flame and I don't do it, then my hand gets burned. And that's what's happening now. So unless we can figure out the last mile, which is we can provide all the information, wisdom, insight, predictive, pre you know, preventive we want, but unless people change their behavior, including all of the players involved in the U.S. sick care system, and by that I mean product makers, payers, patients, providers, policymakers, et cetera, the system will not change and it will collapse. One of the issues that has to be addressed is taking that mountain of data that we are aggregating and picking the usable parts of it out so that we actually get a good result as opposed to just a garbage in, garbage out situation. You, If you can't filter out the unnecessary, you can't benefit from the worthwhile data that's actually contained within that huge mass. That is a that's a huge challenge because the healthcare industry is not the only one that suffers from that just overabundance of data and just the, the tsunami of information. Right. So the challenge is how do you provide the minimum amount required of clean data 
So because we just said there's just simply too much there. So you have to be really picky and choosy, uh, choosy, choosy about what data you want to sense. How do you make sure it's clean in the sense that it's reasonable to implement and to analyze? And how do you, what kind of signal do you send to the end user such that they will change their response or modify their behavior? Um, and in terms of healthcare, that really means actionable information or intelligence at the point of care. The last thing in the world a doctor wants is a tsunami of data during a 15 minute visit. It just won't work. So we need a system, a central nervous system that will meet the challenge and provide me with a dashboard with the bare minimum of information I need at the point of care to do something when the patient is staring me in the eyeballs. It seems like a delicate balancing act to decide, do you filter during data collection in order to not grab superfluous information, or do you still grab everything and find out uh, a better way to filter the unnecessary information? So there's two parts to this. One is quality, as you just indicated. One is quality and one is quantity. Garbage in, garbage out is the qualitative component. Too much or too little is the quantitative component. So the trick is to get it just right. Do you think that's a philosophical question or is that a technical question? Well, I would take it a step further. I mean, it's, it's not a philosophical question in the sense that it's, th there's no practical application to it. I and mean, there's an enormous practical application to it because if we don't do this, we're not going to be able to use this technology. Um, so from a philosophical perspective, yeah, it's interesting, but there's really a, a much more practical reality that we have to do this right or we won't be able to use the technology. So um, th there's an absolute practical reality to getting this right. And it seems, you know, I mentioned that several industries deal with this overload of information, but there are some good lessons that can be gained from industries outside the healthcare industry. There are some some models and some approaches that can be adapted and, and utilized to help the healthcare industry make the next big step forward. Right. So I would make the argument and have made the argument that no industry, including sick care, can be fixed from inside. There are very, very few examples of industries that have transformed themselves from inside without instead they've responded to external stimuli or external technologies that have been imposed on that industry. And the examples are just endless. So I would make the argument one, we're not gonna be able to fix this if we don't rely on outside best practices and lessons learned. Um, and the second point I would make is that many of the challenges that face, face sick care and could possibly be fixed by the internet of medical things um, are already out there. So the main problems have to do with quality, cost, equity, access, doctor experience, patient experience. And if you look at other industries, they have the same issues that they have solved. Whether it's self-driving cars, whether it's financial services, whether it's the travel, whether it's the Amazon effect, you name it, 
There are infinite numbers of industries and use cases that are solving the same kinds of customer service problems, for example, with AI and the Internet of Things. So we simply, in my view, will not be able to so-called move the needle unless we embrace outside solutions. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity to ask you this question. It's a pretty big question to be the final question of the interview, but I th- it's really something that's on my mind. And that is, we've talked about this incredible amount of data. Normally, the data is owned by the person who gathered it. What happens when we get to a point where, as patients, we own our own data? How does that, what sort of challenges is that going to present? So again, uh, I've written about the answer to that question. And what that does is change you as the owner of your data into a patient entrepreneur. In other words, you now have a valuable asset that a lot of people want, your data. Right now, you don't get anything in general for your data. I mean, it, it shows up in an electronic medical record and even unbeknownst to you, it could be resold to someone that wants it like a pharmaceutical or a a drug manufacturer or a medical device company. So when you start owning the data, some interesting questions arise. For example, will you sell it? How much will you charge for it? Will you allow people to resell it? Will you patent or copyright it so that nobody else can steal it or use it without your consent? Is someone's use of your data an illegal taking since you own it? So there are all kinds of social and legal and technical issues that will definitely and are definitely with us now that we're going to have to solve. I have to ask one more last question. Sorry. Uh, And it's because of your entrepreneurial spirit and the thought process that you obviously go through. Is there a viable business model in helping people stay healthy compared to tending to them once they're ill? Absolutely, but you have to change the rules. In other words, the present rules pay you for effort, not outcome, pay you for they don't doesn't make any difference whether it works or not. And the whole system is piecework. So you get paid for piecework whether it works or not. Now that and oh by the way, it's paid for by someone other than the end user, the patient, and the agent, the doctor. So why would we expect anything different than we already have? So the answer to your question is, you bet, but rules create ecosystems, ecosystems create business models, and business models facilitate or inhibit innovation. So if you want to change the system, you have to change the rules. It has been an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you today. And I want to point our listeners to LinkedIn and they can search IOMT Challenges by Dr. Arlen Myers. That's A-R-L-E-N-M-E-Y-E-R-S. And it is a good read. I'm gonna if you like learning things, that article is really very interesting. Uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time today, Dr. Myers. This has been a pleasure and I feel like I'm actually smarter, which always is a good thing for me. I always feel better when I'm smarter. Well, as a professor, that makes me feel good. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you taking the time today. It has been a pleasure, and I definitely look forward to having more conversations with you in the future. I look forward. Thanks for inviting me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com slash industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries.